Australia's efforts to reduce carbon dioxide will have virtually no effect on global temperatures, but climate change policies continue at the cost of billions. Politicians and industry leaders chant of the quest for zero net emissions, regardless of its meaning or cost. Millionaires and billionaires endorse the policies of climate change, so how could they be wrong? Of course, many are making squillions. Multinational companies, global equity funds and renewable energy investors who know that the money is in the bag or the windmill or the solar panel. China is also a big winner in the production of solar panels and wind turbines. Meanwhile, their emissions continue to rise and its commitment to the coal industry increases in contrast to other countries. It now possesses roughly half of the world's coal power capacity as well as coal-fired power plants in development. Funny about that. A steadfast critic of climate change policies, Senator Malcolm Roberts joins us shortly to talk about the findings of a report he commissioned Dr Alan Moran to prepare. The report spells out the great hidden costs of climate policies and renewables on Australian households and jobs. In an extraordinary attack recently, China's state-sanctioned media has accused Australia, Canada, Britain and the US of being members of an axis of white supremacy in an attack on the Five Eyes Intelligence Network. We're joined by Dr John Coyne, head of the North and Australia's security program at the Australian Institute of Strategic Policy to discuss some of the flaws in China's strategic thinking and where that's leading China. John sees opportunities in countering the CCP's increasingly divisive international policies. And in the US, the Democrats' $1.9 trillion stimulus package has recently passed the House. Blake Christian, a partner at HCVT, Holthouse, Carlin and Van Trite in Long Beach in California and in Utah, joins us for an update on the bill's passage and what the final package is likely to contain. Senator Malcolm Roberts commissioned the highly respected Dr Moran to investigate government's costs imposed on us all. The report called The Hidden Cost of Renewables in Electricity Prices uncovers blatant distortions and key facts that are excluded from reporting on the costs of climate policies. Senator Malcolm Roberts, thanks for joining us once again. You're welcome, Mike. It's good to be with you. You commissioned the report, The Hidden Cost of Climate Policies and Renewables by Dr. Alan Moran, a highly respected economist and climate policy expert. Why is this such an important report? It's important because it's the first time it's ever been done. Never before has a comprehensive approach been taken to estimating the costs of uh, climate policies and so-called renewable energy policies. We call them unreliables, not renewables. But Alan Moran is a noted economist, and it's significant for a number of reasons. First of all, it's the first time that all of this material has been put together and evaluated to cost these monstrosities properly. The second thing is that up until fairly recently, the government used to, used to consolidate these costs 
so that they could be easily tracked. A few years ago, they stopped doing that and they started scattering the costs around. So, so um, no one has actually estimated this cost before. It's the first time it's ever been done. And the, the, the spreading apart of, of these costs, the removal of the consolidation, consolidated nature of these costs indicates that the government has been trying to hide something. And that's just exactly what we found. The government has said that the cost of uh, renewable energy policies is around about 6.5% of the typical household electricity bill. Wrong. It's 39%, almost six times higher. Six, it is six times higher. Mm. The cost of, uh, solar, of, of subsidies is estimated by the government to be around about $90. That's what they're telling us. But the real cost from the consolidated figures is $536 uh, per year. But then if you look beyond that, Mike, and you look at the cost per, aver- per, per household, average per household, of all of the costs of, of the extra climate policies and the extra costs of uh, electricity taken through business, it works out at $13 billion a year extra. And that's an extra $1,300 per year per household extra on top of normal electricity bills. People on the average income, sorry, on the median income of uh, 49,000 just cannot afford that. This has all been done artificially. So it's the first time anyone's come clean on the costs. What about our average price per kilowatt per hour for electricity compared to other countries, for example, India and China, using our coal? Well, I'm glad you added that bit about using our coal. So when when we have coal in this country, um, the best coal in the world for making electricity, uh, and we've got some of the best steel-making coal as well, uh, the cost is around about 25, sorry, the price is around about 25 cents a kilowatt hour in Australia using our coal. Mining our coal, putting it on a boat, sending it thousands of kilometres away to India and China, and they sell it for eight cents a kilowatt hour. So it's three times the cost here, even though there's lower transport costs for our coal. And that's because of artificial um, subs- artificial imposts on the on the price of generating electricity using coal because of renewable subsidies and climate policies. It's interesting, China, uh, they're saying that they emit uh, in 16 days what we would do in 12 months, uh, which is really interesting. Now, advocates of renewable energy subsidies quote the benefits of new green jobs. Have you analysed just what sort of jobs they are? Are they mainly low school jobs and jobs overseas? I mean, once you put up a windmill, I mean, what more do you need to do to it? Very little, apart from a little maintenance, mm. uh, Mike. And But the costs of uh, wind and solar are not in the ongoing maintenance costs or, or uh, operating costs. That's where they're very, very low. The real cost is up front in the capital costs, the cost of installing the generators, and they're frightening. And so what happens is there have been studies done in Europe, particularly Spain, a very well-known, famous study in Spain, and it says that for every green job created, there are 2.2 jobs lost in the real economy. So we'd be far better off investing the money that we've wasted on solar and wind investing it in real productive capacity in the in the economy as it stands. But, you know, it just doesn't make sense when you have uh, the fact that the biggest advances in human civilization have occurred in the last 170 years thanks to ever-decreasing prices of electricity. The real price of electricity and energy generally has fallen. And that enables a very important thing, and that is a higher productivity. 
And when you have higher productivity, you have increased wealth generated. When you have increased wealth generated, you have higher standards of living. And, and, uh, and, and cheaper living, you have safety, you have comfort, you have ease, you have uh, benefits materially right across, right across society. So what we've seen now is in the last 24 years, 25 years, quarter of a century, since John Howard started uh, interacting in Australia in 1996 with his policies, what we've seen is instead of the decreasing, uh, relentless decrease in, in energy prices, we've seen an increase in energy prices. We've seen a doubling, in some cases a tripling, of energy prices in the last 25 years. And that, that means we're reversing human progress. We're actually going backwards. And that's shown in our standard of living. The cost of living now is higher, which means our material standard of living is lower. And, and that's the reverse of what we should be doing. And the, the thing that's driven the, the cost of electricity down up until 25 years ago is the increasing use of coal-fired electricity, gas-fired electricity, and, uh, and oil and gas for, for uh, domestic use and also for transport. That's what's revitalized human uh, society. Who are the main... Be- beneficiaries of this are they of, of these subsidies i mean are they large overseas uh, multinationals or are they private equity funds who's getting the most bang for our buck about seven out of the top t- sorry seven out of ten of the top 20 so that's 14 out of the top 20 the top seven uh, top 10 solar and top 10 wind um, investors suppliers in this country are um, foreign owned uh, that that's probably not a surprise to you. You know just how much our economy is dominated by foreign-owned multinationals who pay little or no tax. So both the top 10 solar and top 10 wind is essentially 7 out of 10 uh, for each are foreign-owned uh, multinationals, large corporations, uh, and they're, they're feasting off taxpayers' money and they're feasting off the destruction of jobs in our, in our country because when you have high-priced electricity, manufacturing shuts down, we have agriculture shutting down or changing their crops to lower productive productivity crops uh, or agricultural activity, and those jobs go overseas. So we have very low-skilled jobs left, and we have our export – sorry, our, tra- our trade-exposed industries like um, aluminium refining, smelting, uh, like uh, cement refining, they're exposed and they're vulnerable, and they get shipped overseas. But the beneficiaries are the large foreign multinationals and also some politicians, um, some politicians in this country who have benefited enormously, and also some of the academics and some of the, well, what would you call them, bureaucrats. They've made a living off this, and some of them have actually bought into hundreds of millions of dollars worth of solar or wind, and they're the ones making money. Matt Keane must have made you uh, raise the eyebrows just a titch. Um, you know, he's going to change New South Wales. Uh, I think it's $36 billion or something he's going to spend. Um, he's got this secret report that we're not allowed to see. What are your thoughts on um, New South Wales you know, probably becoming the windmill capital of Australia if he has his way? Well, Keane is just so green. He's in the wrong party. Mm. Well, actually, there are many Liberals uh, who are off with the Pixies as well. But they don't believe... Keane might believe it. It, it. His policies are so stupid and his positions and statements so ridiculous. He may actually believe his rubbish. Um, but many of the Liberals don't. They're just, they're just afraid to speak up. Now, what you've also seen uh, on the other side of the continent, Mike, over in the West, you've got Zach Kirkup, I think is his name, the leader of the, of the Liberal Party in WA. 
he's come out with a policy that says by 2025 they will stop burning coal. I mean, the people in, in the southwest of uh, Western Australia are incredulous. The, the town of Collie is, is going to be decimated. That They produced coal for over 100 years for powering Western Australia. They're going to be shut down, according to Zach Kirkup and the, and the Liberals. Even the National Party uh, partners in the, in the coalition in WA and even some of their own Liberals are saying this is insane. So, I mean, I've, I've sat in the Senate in a division sitting next to the um, Liberal Party senators and, uh, and, and they just laugh at this fellow, their own party. And, and I talk to some of the Labor Party people who tell me that they think their own party is off with the Pixies. They're laughing at Kirkup as well. So what we've seen is, is a silence when it comes to talking sanity apart from One Nation. That's why we're known mm. now as the party for um, energy security and the party for energy affordability. But the, the Liberals have gone lunatic, and, and so have the Labor Party. Now, if somebody wants to find out more about One Nation or Senator Malcolm Roberts, how would they do that? Well, they can go to uh, www.malcolmrobertsqld.com.au. Malcolm Roberts, Senator Malcolm Roberts, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mike. Recently, an editorial in the Chinese state-run newspaper, The Global Times, alleged that the almost 80-year-old Five Eyes Alliance of Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the United Kingdom and the United States is an axis of white supremacy. John Coyne is the head of the North and Australia Security Program and the Strategic Policing and Law Enforcement Program at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. John, great to see you. Hi, Mike. Great to see you. Great to be back here talking with you. The old saying, divide and conquer, seems to be almost the mantra for the CCP. It would also seem to be uh, having some effect. Uh, For example, the Belt and Road Initiative with the Andrews government in Victoria and the nose-to-nose with the federal government, and with New Zealand suggesting that Australia should show respect to China. What's your views on that? Look, Mike, I've got a number of views on this, but I think from the start... um, Let's talk about the effect of it, and then we'll also talk a little bit about why why China is using this sort of approach. And I want to be very clear to the people watching this, and that is that um, you know you can look at these events and see and say be very sort of pessimistic about them. But let me say this, which is, for instance, the relationship with New Zealand. Okay, New Zealand has shed um, blood and treasure in support of its allies, um, and whilst you know, a small wedge may have been driven in between um, New Zealand and Australia recently over trade comments. Um, that relationship is strong. Uh, the federation here in Australia, the Chinese might take it as a great victory that they've got uh, Victoria to sign on to the Belt and Road Initiative. But over the last 12 months, what we've seen um, through things like the National Cabinet is an incredibly strong Australian government Um you know the federation is in great um, is in great straits at the moment, and we can expect, in the broader sense, that um, even if that agreement is cancelled with the Belt and Road and the Victorian government, that the federation will go on. Now, to the other side of that sort of that point, I was making is this: um, when you're an assertive nation that is growing bigger and wants more power, um, you want a world where you can engage bilaterally. 
Um, and in this case, this is exactly what the Chinese Communist Party is doing. It's trying to divide and conquer. It's trying to, um, you know, when it comes to the almost 80-year-old agreement between the Five Eyes countries, so Canada, UK, US, New Zealand and Australia, it's trying to drive a wedge in there. Um, it's trying to say things that, you know, that it's a racist organisation, which simply aren't true. Um, and it's trying, and at times been quite successful in creating that, that environment where everything must be done at a bilateral, so a country-to-country -country level. And that's something that the Australian government must work on with its um, allies and in the, um, within the, the construct of the global rules-based order to address. China's state media has been very critical of your recent article pointing out some flaws in China's strategic thinking. Uh, tell us about you know, what they objected to the most in your article and, and why? Um, look, I think that they responded, and it's, it's really quite interesting, um, Mike, you know, they responded within sort of, I guess, less than 24 hours through the Global Times. Now, um, again, for those watching this, the Global Times is a state-owned um, media outlet, so not like the ABC in Australia, um, where it has a degree of independence. Um, it is state-owned and state-operated. Um, secondly, is they took great umbrage in the fact that this was a commentary that their strategies weren't working, um, that their efforts to use wedge politics and identity politics were actually being destructive, um, that their efforts to use aggressive um, trade attacks and on Australia um, were creating a hardened camper and not having the impact that they want, uh, that those efforts to, to hold Australia to ransom are in fact tarnishing Beijing's reputation. Uh, so I think they took great umbrage on that. And um, that's, that's to be understood. I mm. mean, I think it's a sore spot for them because that's where the power that they're looking for is coming from. What's um, China's main beef with Australia? And I suppose beef is one of those things too. <laughs> Well, that's exactly right, and near and dear to my heart. As a Queensland boy originally from Emerald and Central Queensland, whose family are in the cattle industry, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's it, it, of course <laughs> right there in the forefront of my family's conversations. But quite separately from that, their beef is this: um, they don't want anyone, as in the Chinese Communist Party. This isn't about China, the people. Uh, it's got nothing to do with that. The Chinese Communist Party doesn't want anyone outspoken against them. Uh, they gave us 14 points that they were angry with us on and we needed to change. Now, we can put all of, you know, not go through all of those lists here today, but some of them, um, you know, the fact that Australia had said that it had cancelled 10 activities in foreign investment because it felt that those were impacting on our national sovereignty. So I reverse that question to you and say, well, if we were to want to invest in industries in China um, that were of sovereign and critical nature to the Chinese government, would they allow us to do so? Um, they felt that uh, by demanding publicly uh, an inquiry into the COVID-19 that we were somehow embarrassing them and that we were following the American uh, rules. Now, I, I think that was a very reasonable thing and people have seen we, we want to have a global inquiry um, that's open and free, fear and uh, fearless and frank about um, where the COVID-19 virus originated from. Mm. So I think they've got a number of these very unrealistic expectations of how Australia ought to behave, um, and it's forcing them. And that's where this this argument is from. And I think in some ways they fundamentally misunderstand the world and Australian culture, which is. Um, 
you know, what we've seen here in Canberra is a hardening of our response. Instead of us saying, well, look, you're attacking us economically and putting bans on our trade, on beef, on, um, uh, on our WA um, lobsters, etc., the Australian government's taking a much harsher viewpoint and saying, well, we will find new markets. We must not be reliant here. And I might add, this isn't the first time that um, the Chinese Communist Party has done this. So for people watching this, rare earth elements, okay, these are small little metals that go into making things like phones and joint strike fighters. Uh, on two occasions, the Chinese government own a... Um, Roughly the supply, about 80% of the supply of those rare earth elements in the world. They've constricted supply to the um, markets in Japan in response to some uh, political and diplomatic fallouts. Um, they've locked them out parts of the US market. Now, on both of those occasions, Japan and the US have looked to find um, new ways of obtaining rare earth. So the idea here is is not to respond to this sort of pressure by kowtowing. It's by by being strong. And in fact, um, I think deep down the Chinese Communist Party will respect Australia far more from taking a strong position than taking a weak position. Where do you see Australian policies, say, with respect to China, altering maybe in the next few years? Um, look, uh, you know, I'd like to think that this is a situation where um, eventually the Chinese Communist Party will realise uh, that it needs to be far more responsible and operate within the rules-based order. Uh, it needs to tone back its aggression in places like the South China Sea and that, um, you know, as we've seen recently, orders for coast guards to be able to open fire on people in the South China Sea, etc. I'd like to see those, those stepping back. Unfortunately, I don't think that is going to be the case. I think we face an extended or a protracted period period uh, where re the relationship diplomatically and economically will be under pressure. So I think we're going to see more of the same, Mike, for some time to come. Are there regional groupings, um, for example, quad or strategically important countries where Australia could be doing more? Um, look, I think there are. And, I, I, and I th I'd like to say, I think rare earth elements is a really good one example of that. Um, so we've been blessed in this country by having um, a number of rare earths present here. Um, one of the challenges of mining rare earths is getting significant enough um, equity investment to make these sorts of mines viable. Um, I think there's a real opportunity here, for instance, for the Japanese government, the Australian government and the US government to work collaboratively to to create an alternative and secure supply chain of rare earths and to put more competition into the global market. So I think there's there's definitely room for that. I think there's greater room for cooperation more broadly across the region and bringing closer relationships. Um, multilateralism works and we need to continue to make that work um, and to counterbalance the efforts of a Chinese Communist Party that revels in the idea of um, dividing the world. How do you see, moving across the pond here, uh, and we know that Donald Trump, uh, his mantra was put America first. How do you see Joe Biden and his personal and political links, which are well noted and uh, in, in a lot of the media around the world, his links with China, including those of his political advisers affecting US-China relations and in turn, what happens in our region? 
Look, Mike, I, a couple of things with that. I think first off, you know, in today's globalised world, it's very difficult for anyone who's in business, uh, who's in the world of economics, uh, defence and other industries to not have at least some connection to China. Um, you know, Chinese global supply chains are, are broad, wide and deep. Um, but, you know, I, I think that if we look back, you know, in the Obama years, we saw a, a very clear commitment of a pivot um to the Indo-Pacific region. I think there's a very reasonable expectation that that will continue. And certainly there's no evidence to suggest at this stage of any sort of abandonment or move away from um, from the Indo-Pacific by the US in any form. So I think we're gonna see continued investment in that. And I think we will see, um, while some in Beijing might hope that there'll be a, you know, a, a defrosting and that there'll be a much more open and easy to deal with uh, Washington, I'm not sure that's the case. Interesting times. Um, and China is certainly beating its chest a fair bit. Do you think this is just mainly uh, bravado on China's part or are they really serious? Because, look, they're uh, in, uh, which I heard today, in fact, they're uh, quite entrenched in uh, around in the Caribbean, uh, through Africa, but also on our, on our doorstep around New Guinea uh, with that uh, rather large city they want to build there on the water, which is just a hop, skip and a jump from Darwin. Uh, plus also the other South Pacific nations surrounding Australia. Do you think that we should be a little more wary of China or is this, as I said, is this just the, the beating of the chest before they, uh, before they get back to uh, negotiations and uh, living as much in harmony as possible. Look, I think there's an awakening more broadly, certainly regionally, um, to the challenges of how to deal diplomatically, economically, politically um, with China. Okay, So I think that's the case. Uh, but, you know, you and I are old enough to remember this, and I always put in this sense, so, you know, the... It's not so much, I was going to say the 70s, Mike, but I think that would be unfair. So let's just say the 80s. But, you know, the 60s, 70s and 80s, the world faced an existential threat from um, global thermonuclear war. Mm. Okay, it was a real possibility. At the time, though, there were very clear rules of the road. Um, don't get me wrong, there were times, and I think that if you look back on your own youth, you'll probably remember times where, um, you know, the doomsday clock worried us all and we thought that, you know, we, we saw movies like The Day After it's, and uh, Webs in the UK that showed this, you know, global nuclear wars. Um, I don't think that's the case today, but I do say this to you. Um, with the increased strategic uncertainty that we face globally, um, I think that the likelihood of... of, of a negative or some sort of conflict as a result of strategic miscalculation or operational misadventure um, is really much higher. Mm. Um, it's not the end of the world. By that, what I mean is, is I want you to imagine a young 25-year-old US fighter pilot flying at enormous speeds over the South China Sea and a 25-year-old um, Chinese fighter pilot doing the same, um, one coming too close to the other and making... Um, a misjudgment, uh, and I could see some pretty bad consequences coming from that. Similarly, um, some as the rules of the global rules-based order continue to be tested and um, to use the vernacular from the Obama era, red lines keep on getting crossed. Uh, there's greater uncertainty, so the possibility that one or more people or countries involved in this could make a decision um, that was strategically unsound seems possible now too. So uh, I think front and centre of all that, though, is, is, is this need to, for continued multilateralism, continued co communication. Mm. Um, 
and to making sure that we identify what the red lines are um, and maintaining sovereignty in this country. The Again, the uh, the beating of the chest from both sides, the West and, uh, and China. Um, should we continue the West to, to push back? And if we do push back with respect, how long before that actually stops? How long should do you think that we should say enough's enough? You cannot do this. You must stop. And we know we know that China just won't stop because you know they've got this uh, this mindset, especially from the CCP. So, what do you think we should do? Do you think we should try and negotiate and move our way through it, or do we need to say at some stage you must stop? Look, I think these things. Are, this is where we're seeing, a, a, I guess, a, a progressive ratcheting up on this. I, I, I want to pick up that use of the word beating the chest, and I certainly I don't think. Um, I don't think, and you know, people like to throw that around. I don't think the West has been beating its chest on these issues. Um, it has been raising considerations and alarms. So let's take let's take trade sanctions. Mm. Um, so you know, the Chinese Communist Party um, wants to develop and wants the opportunity to develop economically for its 1.4 billion um, population, and that, that's a very fair thing to want to do. Um, that said, we as Australians and the West want to make sure that we have secure supply chains. So, you know, pardon the, pardon the silliness of it, but, you know, so that we always have toilet paper on the shelves and we have medicines and we have cars, etc. Now, um, China has shown and that we have secure markets that keep our economy going. Now, China has shown on a number of occasions, or the Chinese Communist Party, um, that they are willing to constrict supply. Mm. And they are willing to cancel orders. They are willing to find ways to stop that two-way t- trade. So um, they're not a reliable trade partner. So one of the ways of addressing this is not militarily, um, but is by finding alternative markets uh, to reduce the risk, both in terms of sales and, and in terms of imports and manufacturing. So supply chains more broadly. Um, secondly, though, is, you know, Things like the freedom of navigation exercises that uh, a variety of militaries do through the South China Sea send a very clear message that um, the Chinese Communist Party's claim over the South China Sea remains contested um, and that there is a global right to continue to do freedom of navigation exercises through that region. Um, so, you know, I think that, you know, this isn't about beating chests and, um, and war drums. This is about making sure... Um, that we put these things in place in the best of our nation's interest. Similarly, um, you know, foreign interference by whatever country in Australia is unacceptable. Interesting. Um, and, uh, and time for another discussion later on. Uh, words just uh, come through that they think that China's been nicking uh, India's uh, energy and we have um, uh, all sorts of, uh, again, the, uh, the bravado in the South China Sea um, you know, reports saying that um, China, with their lone wolf, uh, doing the same sort of approach with their uh, patrol boats with uh, the the, uh, the Philippines. So a lot of things to uh, talk about there, which is fact and which, which is fiction. Uh, from the media, I probably believe it's more uh, <laughs> more on the, uh, the, the, the world of make-believe, but um, it certainly makes good reading. John Coyne, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mike. As always, it's been fun. As we speak, the U.S. Senate is now debating President Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID stimulus package ahead of a successful planned vote. Blake Christian is from Holthouse, Carlin and Van Trite. Uh, Blake, great to see you once again. 
Always good to see you, Mike. Can you give us an update on where the stimulus bill is? Yeah, so the uh, the bill passed, uh, I think it was late Friday night. It might have been Saturday morning. And uh, so it has gone through the House, the, the lower um, chamber. And uh, now it's in the hands of the Senate. Uh, the Senate has, um, you know, definitely expressed, at least on the Republican side, that they don't have a, a stomach for a lot of the things that are in the bill. And um, so we we do expect some changes to to uh, to the bill. But, uh, you know, as you know, the Democrats are in control. So I think it'll probably pass pretty similar to what's what's in the House bill. But but they are. You know, the, the good news is they've gotten rid of the um, uh, minimum wage, the $15 minimum wage for the moment. And that most likely will resurface. When do you think it'll come back again? Because it was a fairly uh, pertinent point to the whole bill, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, so there, there's already some um, legislators that are pushing legislation that would uh, would tack on a, a 5% payroll tax uh, if people did not pay... Uh, the $15 minimum wage. So uh, the, you know, might win the, win the, the battle, but you know, the war, who knows? Any new taxes likely to pass? Uh, what about uh, Warren's wealth tax, which must bring joy to many hearts? Not. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, you know, the art of messaging uh, is, is in play right now. So she's out there saying, Oh, you know, millionaires and billionaires, two or three cents uh, is not a big deal. So, but it's it's two or three percent on your net worth, uh, two two percent on uh, your net worth above fifty million dollars um, would be taxed at two percent. Uh, if you had a, if you're a billionaire, anything um, over a billion would have a three percent tax rate applied to it. So. You know, again, I'm I'm using shorthand math here, but you know, a billionaire would pay an extra thirty million dollars a year in this wealth tax. So, and if you just had somebody with a stagnant million dollars, which wouldn't happen, and it does, you know, your base decreases each year. But basically, after about forty years, you're you totally exhaust your, um, you know, your your net worth. So it's you know, it's it's not. It's not not little numbers. There have been some uh, fairly uh, encouraging economic statistics, uh, manufacturing and housing, for example. But is the economy still a bit iffy uh, in regards to maybe employment? Yeah, you know, employment. I think we had 840,000 job claims last week. And, um, you know, so that that spooked the market a little bit. You know, we're seeing increases in long-term interest rates, mortgages jumped up, and so that reduced the number of loan applications. And, and I saw that uh, like house, housing uh, contracts decreased by 6%. So it's really, you know, pretty, you know, we're kind of on the cusp and, and little things uh, can throw the economy off uh, real quickly. And I also saw that, you know, it could take up to 2024 before we get, you know, the economy fully back to where we were in 2019. What's the business sentiment like amongst those you speak with at the moment, being a man about town dressed to kill? I can see that. Uh, or, or, or CPA extraordinaire, you have your finger on the pulse. 
Is it confident? Is there uh, optimism out there or, or what? You know, it, it kind of breaks down a little a little bit geographically. You know, my, my friends in California, you know, kind of kind of feel a little bleak from, you know, a lot of the, the COVID hangover. Um, you know, people in Texas are a little more optimistic, even they, they, they just went through the deep freeze. East Coast people, again, you know, for the most part, the East Coast, uh, especially Florida, though, everybody's pretty optimistic there. Uh, New York, not so much, but, you know, all this, most of the states in between, people feel pretty good. Uh, and then, the you know, the Midwest, you know, they're you know, they're, they're, they're doing okay. You know, I, I wouldn't say that I don't have a lot of contacts there, but the ones that I have, they're, they're I think they're just kind of feeling the little middle of the road. Those Midwesterners kind of always feel that way. A while back, we, um, we put the question to you, um, out of a rating of 10, uh, how would you rate, and you said a solid five last time with, uh, Joe Biden and his administration. Uh, what about this time? Out of ten? Yeah, well, uh, he's he slipped to uh, sub five. I'll I'll, uh, I'll give him a four. I'm being I'm being nice because uh, he's early in his uh, mm. in his presidential term, but with uh, you know seventy plus executive orders and um, you know the halting of the pipeline and uh, him not having any press conferences so far. Um, he's uh, he's disappointing. Okay, so he slipped from a five, a solid five, to a four now. Um, only time will tell whether he'll hit that big zero with you, but we'll find out, I'm sure, in the next few weeks. Now, if somebody wants to talk to you about ratings for presidents or uh, tax <laughs> or just have a good old conversation with you, how do they do that with Blake Christian extraordinaire? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, www hcbt.com or you can just google Blake Christian CPA and you can get a hold of me that way. Blake Christian from Holthouse, Carlin and Van Trite. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. And that's it for Asia Pacific Today. Thanks for joining us. I'm Mike Ryan.